Good morning, church. We're here in our living room and to your living room this morning. And I hope as uh, the last week has transpired that you and your family are safe and things are going well for you as you continue to adjust to uh, the situation that we're in. It's in God's hands. We have to continue to believe that. I want to pray here, but I just want to share these folks with you this morning. These these are some people that have passed that we need to pray for their families. Susan Whitehead's mother, Mary Ellen Powell Kusick, Donna Kleckner and Terry's mom, Jean Day, Lynn Gentry's father, Jerry Gentry, and, uh, of course, all those people that's some of your names on it, I'm sure, is on our prayer list on our website. So continue to check on that and continue to uh, keep those folks in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your comforting power. And I just pray into these people's lives right now, Lord, as they uh, continue to deal with their grief, as it goes out in stages in their life, that you'd give them grace and mercy in that and just help them uh, in, their, in their hours of need. We, we love you, Lord, and we give you praise and glory. And we do lift those up on the prayer list and help us to be diligent to lift uh, each other up in prayer. And that's, that's what you want us to do, Father. So I pray that I, these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I also wanted to remark, uh, applaud, call it what you will, thank you uh, for your great generosity as you continue to uh, give to God and, and His church. We, it's really appreciated, and I know God is, is blessing you for that. The title of this message uh, this morning is Evil with a Capital E. If you were to look up the word life in heaven's thesaurus, one of the first synonyms we would find would be pain. Life is filled with sharp bumps and hard floors. We know that. The great example is when we were teaching our children or they taught on themselves on their own uh, how to walk and all the bumps and the bruises and the knots that they had and they'd get up and they'd fall and they'd get back up until finally they, they could walk. I, I think life is like that. Uh, for us, we try to cushion ourselves from the bumps and the braces but and get ready for the falls. But pain, we have found, is inescapable. It, it's part of our life. It comes with the territory. We can't quarantine ourselves or huddle ourselves away in a cave somewhere to avoid it. Neither can we hope that because we are in Christ that we will be insulated from that. The cold, hard realities of life, it, it certainly wasn't that way with the saints of old. Innocent Job was covered with skin ulcers. Faithful Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Godly Joseph was imprisoned. Courageous Paul was beaten. Bold John the Baptist was beheaded. Spirit-filled Stephen was stoned. And even Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was tortured and crucified. Speaking from his pain, Job tells us, Man who was born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil, Job 14.1. The Living Bible distills his words into three succinct statements. How frail is man? How few his days? And how full of trouble? Earlier in the book, Job remarks, verse 7 to chapter 5, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Born for trouble. It's something we try to avoid, to eradicate it out of our minds, but we are faced with it daily. I, th I think there has to come a time in our lives when we stop trying to escape the inescapable. It's probably time we faced up to pain and sufferings and hardship and affliction. 
we're in the midst of that. And it's time probably we stopped skipping class and took our seats to learn the lesson that pain has to teach us. We don't get a free pass. I, I think maybe if you have heard that in your past about coming to Christ, that how things will be, uh, you've been misled. A lot of times in our lives, it, it gets a little tougher. But then we add to the circumstances of the environment that we live in today with this old COVID-19 thing, and it, it just adds to it. Suffering is a repeated theme throughout life. When we analyze life's troubles, the categories seem legion, don't they? There is so many. And at tr try as we may, they can't be rationalized away. We can't hide our head in the sand and think that these things aren't happening in the world. We, we face them in Christ. Here's some categories of suffering. There are disasters in the natural world that we're aware of. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, mudslides, blizzards and drought, tsunamis and fires. It seems constant around the world somewhere. There are physical afflictions, injuries, birth defects, handicaps, disabilities, diseases, burns, assaults. Coronavirus, Ebola, the flu, on and on and on and on. There are emotional traumas, phobias, depressions, neurosis, psychosis, self-image struggles, and insecurities. They abound. There are domestic conflicts, husband and wife battles, parent and child problems, decisions about aging parents, arguments over finances, and on and on and on and on. We know this is part of life. Then there are national and international concerns. Crime, drugs, cyber attacks, gangs, nuclear war, economic worries on a global scale, and terrorist attacks. Job was right. How frail is man, how few his days, how full of trouble. But it comes down to this today as we speak together. What's your reaction to suffering? What is my reaction to suffering? In his book, The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck echoes what Job said thousands of years earlier, and I quote, What makes life difficult is that the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Problems, depending upon their nature, evoke in us frustration or grief or sadness or loneliness or guilt or regret or anger or fear or anxiety or anguish or despair. These are uncomfortable feelings often very uncomfortable, often as painful as any kind of physical pain, sometimes equaling the very worst kind of physical pain. Indeed, it is because of the pain that events or conflicts engender in us that we call them problems. And since life poses an endless series of problems, life is always difficult and is full of pain as well as joy." End of quote. So since pain is so pervasive, how should we react to it? First of all, we can never react correctly to life's pain and hurts unless we have the correct theological understanding of these things. At the center of them all is evil, with a capital E. Evil entered the world that we know of when humanity morally stumbled and fell in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, Romans 5, 12. So, in a sense, we, we pass the buck and we are finger pointers, so we could say this this morning, I suppose, thank you, Adam and Eve, for what you brought upon the world. 
which translates eon, e after eon, millennia after millennia, down to this day in 2020. It all, we can trace it back to the garden is what I'm trying to say. From time, from that time, a Pandora's box remained forever open, unleashed upon the world. Pain, hardship, suffering, sorrow, and death flowed from paradise lost to pollute the entire earth. Genesis 3, 16 and 19. We can't ever underestimate the destruction that sin causes then, all through history, until now, today. No matter how pristine the beauty of Eden had been, it now lay overgrown with thorns and thistles in a state of moral and physical ruin. Have you, you ever been to the mountains? Have you ever been to the sea or someplace that's pristine and, and fresh and the way the air smells? That's, I, I don't think we can grasp the Garden of Eden. There wasn't anything wrong there, absolutely nothing. Man had not entered sin into the world and pollution had not come. It was pristine. But now things have changed. By Adam and Eve's act and bringing sin into the world, disobedience to God. All this brings us back to our friend Esther, an unspoiled flower in the king of Persians garden. Lurking in the shadow, a cast, casting a dark pallor over her queenly throne is evil. And with it, this evil brings pain and ultimately death. John Piper explains why evil exists in this clip. Let's watch. Everything exists, including evil, and is ordained by an infinitely wise and holy God to make the glory of Christ shine more brightly. Everything exists, including evil, by God's design in order to serve the glorification of Jesus Christ. Some of us at Bethlehem read the Bible through in a year on the Discipleship Journal reading plan. This week, those of us who were doing that read Proverbs 16.4, which says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. God has done that in his own mysterious way such that the wicked are really guilty and really accountable and really worthy of judgment. And God is totally without sin. That's the way he does it. In great inscrutability. God allows evil to make Christ shine more brightly. I've never looked at it that way. I, I hope you see that today, that in the presence of that, it makes the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives shine more brightly because he has given us the ability to live above it, to rise above it and confront it head on. And when it comes into our life, the, the great uh, way that he has for us to get out of it by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. And he forgives us. We ask for forgiveness. 
So in our story, evil comes in the form of a mutiny, a minor plot against the king. At this moment in this fairy tale story that we have been telling, we anticipate the idyllic ending, the ending that you and I love, and they lived happily ever after. But the story takes a turn down a dark alley instead, and we find a secret conspiracy. We pick up the story where two of the king's men are plotting from the shadowy recesses of their evil hearts in Esther chapter 2, 21 and 22. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials from whom for those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So these two men, Big Than and Teresa's anger toward the king festered into murder. We see Swiss punishment comes. Word of the plot leaked out to Mordecai and from him through Esther to the king, the insurgents were sentenced to death, and before the ink was dry on the decree, they were history. Verse 23. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So the tendency to think sometimes that since evil was decisively dealt with, peace returned to the royal palace. Not so. It rears its ugly head again, and this time farther up the official ladder. Inner vengeance a major scheme against the Jews. Now, going back to when we first started, Esther, a few weeks ago, we have to remember that this was all Satan-inspired. Even in those days, even all those millennia ago, Satan was trying to work a plan that the lineage of Jesus Christ would be stamped out and it wouldn't happen. But we see in this whole story how God intervened as he does in our lives today. Since Mordecai saved the king's life, you would think maybe that he would have been offered a promotion to prime minister of the country. But he has passed over. Just another example sometimes that how deserving people often get overlooked and that righteousness goes unrewarded. It's unfair, but that's how life is. And I think it's good to keep in our minds and hearts that our reward is not here on this earth. Sometimes it is as God blesses us, but our main reward's on the other side of the river as followers of Christ, and that's when it'll all come to fruition and it'll all make sense to us. The one who does get the promotion is Haman, an anti-Semite bent on Mordecai's destruction and the destruction of every Jew on the face of the earth. Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was then, now it was when they spoke daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hold, lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. 
so there always has to be a reason, it seems. The roots of Haman's bitterness toward the Jews can be traced back to his family tree. He was a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite king whom Samuel finally killed. So the Amalekites had remained bitter enemies of the Jews, and the feud was taken up by Haman. Prejudice is a vicious evil. We can't paint the picture of it today as dark and as sinister that it really is. And it's hereditary. It's passed down from generation to generation. That's an amazing thing to me, that a whole group of people can be hated just because somebody's dad or mom or grandpa hated them. When Mordecai refused to bow down, the anti-Semitic hair on the back of Haman's neck stood on end. He became filled with rage in verse 5. He became killing mad. We all have anger, and I think there are different stages. But this last one, when you get to the point that you are so angry with somebody that you could kill him, that's a whole other world. Mordecai refused to bow down for two reasons. One, the act would be considered idolatry to the Jews. They were not to bow to anybody but God Almighty. And two, in no way did he want to show respect to an Amalekite and avowed enemy of his people. I don't know if you have an avowed enemy. I hope not. I hope it's Satan, actually. But we see this conflict with the Arab-Israeli situation today. They hate each other. They hate each other to the nth degree, so to speak. I've told this story before, but 30-some years ago uh, when I was in Israel, we were in Haifa, and the bus, the tour had eaten, and I'd finished early and went outside and was sitting on a bench waiting for the group. A little Jewish man came and sat down beside me. I spoke, and he spoke, and he said, I perceive that you are an American. I said, I am, sir. And uh, he said, did you see those Exodus boats down on the waterfront, the shrines that we have made of them? I said, yeah. He said, I come over here in the late 40s from Europe, and these are the boats that brought us to our homeland, our homeland. He said, I want you to understand that this is our land. The Arabs have no place here. And he said, if I had the chance, I would kill them all, men, women, and children. Have you ever looked in somebody's eye and they told you that, they would kill women and children. It, 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 just, it just blew me away because uh, the hatred and the prejudice was vehement. It was just it was coming out of his eyes in streaks, and it, uh, it upset me, actually. I, I'd never dealt with that. I've, I've been around prejudiced people here in America, but I've never seen or heard anything like that. So this was the feelings that uh, between Haman and Mordecai and, and the Jews. So the plan for extermination was being born. Haman's hatred seethed in a cauldron that spilled over not only on Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, Verse last part of verse 6. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And again, I said earlier how large this kingdom was of 127 provinces. It stretched from India to Ethiopia, the known world. He wanted to kill every Jew, man, woman, child. Haman is a prime example of how deceitful and desperately wicked the human heart can be. And I'm talking about all of our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's almost disheartening for us to think about that. We know our own hearts. We know that the evil that leaks, that, that lives there, that 
if we're not careful, can can leak out and poison uh, our bodies. I know Jesus said, when the Pharisees were asking him about who he came for, he said, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. That Greek word's nosia, the sick in the mind. And that goes along right along with what we're saying here. You, you read that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17.9, and you can also read it in Romans 3.13-18. through 18. It was from the murky depths of hearts like Haman's that the Holocaust was dredged up. So in the ominous shadows of the concentration camp, racial hatred laid on, in wait for Jewish blood threatening the genocide of an entire race. Haman had plenty of time to engineer the fate of the Jews as he waited for his number to come up to be brought before the king. So at this point in his mind, in this story, he had the inroads, the power to bring this awful, terrible act to bear. We read in Esther 3, 7, and 8, In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per P-U-R, that is, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. P-U-R, per. It's small rocks or similar items used to make decisions by chance. It's like we would roll dice. I think this is interesting here. He started doing this daily in the first month, and his number didn't come up till the 12th month. So all, all those days in the lunar calendar is what the Jews go by. He, he cast lots every day because he didn't get the number he wanted, so it took a year from the first month to the twelfth month to get that. And a little side note on this, per uh, the, the Jews today celebrate Purim, which is a celebration of being delivered from Haman's evil plan. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there. So if you hear that word, that's what it is. Haman then sweetens the rotten pot with the spice he hopes will appeal to the king's palate. A pinch of greed. Verse 9. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Do you realize that 10,000 talents of silver equals 375 tons, estimated to represent two-thirds of the annual income of the entire Persian Empire? And no doubt that Haman planned to make good on this pledge by confiscating the assets of those that he annihilated. It was the plan that Hitler put into motion. Even years and years after that, not too far in the past, they were still paying reparations to the Jews because they took all their property, all their money, all their paintings, all their art. Hitler did this, and so did the Vichy government in France, the same thing, and it happened in Warsaw and Poland when all the Jews were put in the ghetto. The neighbors said, hey, these Jews got nice stuff. Now it's ours. Let's let's take it. And that's exactly what happened. So that's that's what Haman's plan was. That's where this money was going to come from. The plan sounded in the best interest of the empire, and the king gives it the thumbs up, verses 10 and 11. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, 
gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also. Do with them as you please. The whole story behind the signet ring is only the king had it. And he would put that on a piece of paper, hot wax, put the ring down, make the signet. And when people saw that, they knew it was from the king himself. So the evil die is cast. Here's the dreaded denouncement to all in the land of Persia, all 127 provinces. The entire, entire plot had been synchronized like clockwork. So the scribes were poised and ready to write. The ring on Haman's hand gave him the power of eternity to set the king's seal on any document he drafted. It's like the power of eternity today. In your life, if you give a person the power of eternity, they are you. They speak for you. They can make deals. They can draw money out. They can do whatever. And that is the power that, that the king had given Haman. The couriers were ready to ride their steeds to all the provinces of the kingdom. And the herald's lips were pursed in to, to cry, Hear ye, hear ye. The gears were set in motion. Verses 12 through 15, we read of this terrible decree. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written, Just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out and impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. The scene in that last verse is ironic. The king and Haman sat down for a peaceful drink while the city stumbles over itself in bewilderment. Can you imagine getting a decree like that? If our president came on his daily briefings and said something to this effect, how we think we're shocked now sometimes this would be off the chart. So like Friday the 13th, this 13th of Adar loomed in the people's minds with a macabre foreboding. In just 11 months, the streets would become tributaries of blood, rivers of racial hatred, red with anti-Semitism. So thus falls the curtains on Act 2 of this drama that we are in, and it doesn't look good for the Jewish people. We'll finish this story later, and if you want, you can go read it yourself in your Bibles, Book of Esther. So besides the two that were hanged, three male actors have performed in our drama so far, Mordecai, Haman, and King Hazarias. Each of the characters has something specific to teach us. So here's our application uh, today for us in 2020. From Mordecai, we learn this. Always remember that someone will resent your independent devotion to the Lord. Mordecai's loyalty to God prevented him from bowing his knee to Haman, the prime minister. Our devotion to God should also keep us from compromising our convictions. People are always watching us for our reactions to situations in life. The situation that we find ourselves in today. 
social distancing, maybe we don't see, we're not seeing people like we did. But the people that matter the most are seeing you and I the most. It's imperative, especially for parents as children, that they live their faith in the sense of what's going on around us. Are your reactions godly? Do they represent Christ in such a time as this? As you sit with your children, uh, as you perhaps hopefully watch this message, and as I don't know if your kids watch the news, probably not with you, but when all these <clears throat> negative things come in, what, what's our response? From Haman we learn, never underestimate the diabolical nature of revenge. It will poison your life if you do not. Proverbs says this in 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. If that source becomes poisoned, so will all the streams that flow out of it. Do you hold grudges? You ever jealous? You ever plot revenge or make plans to get even? It's sin if you do. So from the king, we learn this. Never overestimate your own importance. Some wise counselor should have came along beside King Ahasuerus and said to him, What is this you're allowing? You thought this through, and why? Not even you are important enough to decide the fate of an entire nation. There have been or will be evil interludes in all of our lives. Satan comes and he goes. But we don't have to follow the script wickedness has written for us. We can break out of that role. We can change the tra tragic storyline. But to do so, we have to have Mordecai's courage behind our convictions to keep us from compromising. I, I hope that you're using this time wisely. I don't know about your life, but my life has been altered. Um, time and place has switched around. I'm working from home, so to speak, and it's, it's just a little different. But I'd say probably the majority of us have a little more time to focus on God during such a time as this. And I, I pray this morning that, that you're doing that. That you're, you're using this time to really contemplate your relationship with Christ, your relationship with your family, your relationship to your neighbors and those around you. I hope that you are reaching out more now than you ever have in your life. Whoever the Holy Spirit lays on your heart with a text or a phone call, email, whatever, video chat, doesn't matter. But what matters is that you are using this time for God, for you yourself to become a stronger follower in Christ. That when this is all over, people will look back and say, look, look what the church did. Look what these people that claim to know Jesus did. They were actually Jesus during this time. So that's my prayer for all of us today as we think about this. Is Read the book of Esther. It's an interesting drama. And, it, and there's so many things that intertwine uh, themselves with our lives today on what's going on in such a time as this. Love you guys. Miss you. Looking forward to the day that we get back together. Lord, thank you for loving us. I thank you for everybody that that watches this, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you grip their heart right now and let them feel your presence in a mighty way. And maybe some of these problems and troubles that I talked about with anxiety and insecurities, I just pray, God, that you speak to those right now in their hearts, that they may, may remain strong in you, and we may restrong, remain strong as a body of Christ. We love you, God. We give you praise and glory.
For we ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.